Uh, welcome to everyone to the second in our series of Chaplaincy Innovation Lab webinars. I'm Michael Skaggs, the Executive Director of the Lab, and joining us right now is uh, our two of our uh, prospective four panelists for having some technical difficulties with, with one, and we will hear from another here soon. Uh, so to my, uh, to my right, at least on my screen anyway, is Sarah Job, uh, who's been a prison educator for 10 years through the Duke University Divinity School and a prison chaplain for the last eight years through Interfaith Prison Ministry for Women. Uh, joining us also is Bart Campolo, who is a pastoral counselor and the host of the Humanize Me podcast and the volunteer humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati. Of, of, I can hear a little bit of an echo. I can hear a little bit of an echo. So I'm not talking. I'm not talking. Uh, let me just uh, go ahead and ask you to introduce yourself a little bit and give us sort of the background of why you ended up in the work you're doing now and um, what brought you here. Bart, do you want to start us off? No, you go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> All right. Um, so as uh, was shared, I'm a chaplain in a women's prison here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it's a minimum custody women's camp, which among other things means that everyone there is within five years of release or parole eligibility. Um, so in addition to the things you would normally think about in prison chaplaincy, um, pastoral care, religious programming for all of the religions recognized by the state. In our state, that's 16 different faith traditions. Um, we also have a population that is actively planning for a whole new life, um, sometimes moving to a new city than they've ever lived in, certainly looking for new work, um, looking to set up oftentimes new social networks, um, because often the social networks that someone has been in were part of what led to incarceration and so it's a huge time of transition and chaplaincy in this context means both spiritual care and spiritual care around anxiety around building connections around visioning for the future but it can also mean really practical care and partnering with um, our friends in social work and case management um, to to get really practical needs met um, I got into this work as an educator through Duke Divinity School and found myself in the back of this prison in a double wide trailer that was both the classroom space and the worship space there as a teacher and just felt immediately at home. I mean, it was one of those ridiculous stories that doesn't make sense. Uh, where you walk in some place and feel that you're at home and after two years of teaching there their chaplaincy position opened up and I quickly and immediately put my name in the hat and have been there ever since. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I am at the University of Cincinnati right now as the humanist chaplain, but I, I just came back here a year ago from Los Angeles where for three years I was the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California and that's kind of where USC is where I got kind of my shaping experience as a chaplain. I'd worked with college students my whole life as an urban missionary um, in the context of the Christian world. But like, I think one of the things that's sort of distinctive about my chaplaincy is not just like where I work, but like the identity in which I work, work in. Because when I got to USC, I was the first humanist chaplain they'd ever had. I mean, it was this hugely diverse university but I was the first person that came in 
who was explicitly ministering to young people who had no supernatural faith. You know, so it's so, like our, our fellowship was called the Secular Student Fellowship. And so the idea of being a religious leader, in, 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 religion sort of broadly defined as the, the search to answer life's ultimate questions. Um, where do we come from? What happens to us when we die? What makes a meaningful life? What makes something right or wrong? How should we, how do we build the kind of relationships that, that maximize our potential? All that stuff. There were hundreds of groups on USC's campus working that from every supernatural angle imaginable. Um, but when I showed up, I was kind of the first secular person there. And, you know, in many ways, the thing that made my, my chaplaincy there and, and here distinct is that people assume when you're the atheist or the, you know, the secular chaplain that you're there to like, you know, debate Christians or to like deconvert people and all that kind of stuff. Like no interest in that at all. You know, spent 30 years as an evangelical Christian myself. Like I understand why people believe in God and, and, and I've seen it do wonderful things in people's lives. My whole interest was half the campus has no faith whatsoever and nobody was providing pastoral care to those people. Nobody was organizing them together and saying like, hey, if this is the only life you have, how do you make the most of it? Like, let's, like, let, let's, you know, let's create, you have all these values, let's create a community that enables each other to better live up to those values. And so I'm like, the funny thing is, is that I'm probably- Hello standard chaplain you can imagine just little johnny pastoral caregiver um and community organizer but because i'm the humanist everybody's like wow this is really different and it's really old as dirt thanks mark i'll uh, introduce james here who's joining us uh, at perfect timing uh, as we as we wind up with uh, with Sarah and Bart, James, I just asked uh, to sort of give the elevator pitch version of the work that you do and how you ended up doing it. I was joking before we started that everything was working just fine until we actually started. <laughs> and then things started to go a little haywire there on James's end. James, can you hear us at all? I think not. I know. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait till James has a moment to to tinker around with that. Uh, his, his is muted now. It says muted. Yeah, his his is muted because it was it was coming through, but he couldn't hear us. So I'm going to mute him until until things sort of uh, shake out there. Right. I wanted to, to follow up a little bit when you mentioned, you know, people have this idea that you are there to deconvert religious believers or you know to sort to sort of proselytize in an atheist key. Um, how do you respond to people that challenge you? either from a position of religious belief or from a secular position of, you know, what, how can a humanist be a chaplain? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? I know it's not, but surely for many people, the perception is there that without a system of religion underpinning it, what can chaplaincy accomplish? And I'm not challenging you in that sense, but I'm guessing that you have heard that before. And so I'm wondering what your response is 
in that scenario. You know, it's funny, like, like you're, you know, this chaplaincy thing that you're doing, like, I, like what, what, what working definition do you guys have for chaplains? Chaplaincy, like, what do you, what do you, what do you call it? What does a chaplain mean to you? Uh, in many ways, what chaplain means to us is the enormous diversity of meanings that chaplains have ascribed to it themselves. Um, and that can mean very many different things. Um, ultimately, we see it as providing spiritual care in whatever, in whatever sense that means. Uh, and spiritual care to one person is very different from spiritual care to another. Um, and so we take kind of a, a broad definition, and we think that works fairly well. Yeah, well, I, I, certainly nobody can argue with it. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think for me, like on a college campus, you know, there is very clearly the whole agenda is there. It's about youth development. You know, these young people show up and they're learning and they're figuring out what they're going to do with their lives. And, you know, I mean, on a typical college campus, you've got lots of kids that are going through tremendous struggles with their families, you know, identity formation. They're, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. They're in sexual relationships that are for the first time, you know, for, you know, going crazy in different ways. They're dealing with drugs and alcohol in ways. There's depression, anxiety. So like you have a bunch of people that are kind of in both the positive and the negative sense of the word, often in crisis. And so, you know, you say, well, you know, what are you doing there? You know, well, trying to help young people navigate through that and figure out kind of how they can make the most of their lives. And so you know, it really is about spiritual growth. But some, and sometimes that spiritual growth in, in my, in, you know, at, at a university like USC or UC, there's kind of an orthodoxy here that comes from the university that says the way to make the most of your life is by becoming hugely successful and giving a lot of money to the university. And, um, and in many cases at a place like USC, it's about producing people that can make rich people richer in the context of corporate America. So a lot of the work that I was doing at USC you know, is very subversive work where you're sort of going like, is that really what your life is about? You know, is that really the best you could, is that what you want to do with your life? Your parents are making rich people richer. How's that working out for them? And they're like, oh, I don't want to be like my parents. And you're like, you might not want to get on that same train then. You know, and so a lot of what I was doing at USC was sort of challenging the orthodoxy of kind of the American collegiate, you know, dream. Bart, it's interesting. Um of the first few sentences that you said, I think could have actually described prison chaplaincy as well. So you said that you have this group of people and they're learning who they are and they're developing and they're trying to figure out what their life is gonna be about, what they, what they want their life to be. And they're dealing with depression and they're dealing with anxiety and they're having conflict with family and most of the time uh, folks are in crisis. And so until the rich started getting richer, it sounded like we're actually doing much of the same work. Uh, not a lot of rich getting richer in, in my field. We're more on the other, other end, nose bombing into poverty. Um, so some of the practical concerns about what life might look like, what vocation looks like, we may be talking about different paths, but in terms of spiritual listening, uh, creating a container in which people can process who they've been and who they want to become. I imagine that maybe we're doing some of those same creation of container work. Yeah, and you know what else is the same? Is that in, on a college campus, like 
I can walk up to almost any kid and just say, so what are you reading? And they'll tell me, I say like, what, what are you studying? And they'll tell me, and I'll say like, so you, you, do you want to have coffee? I'd, I'd love to hear your story. And they're like, sure. Nobody ever turns me down. You know, like, it, it, because there aren't a lot of adults wandering around sort of going like, tell me about your life, baby. What's going on? And so I think that in many ways, what d differentiates chaplaincy from a lot of other forms of ministry are, in chaplaincy, you're kind of moving in a population where I'm not necessarily trying to get you to join my thing. I'm just here trying to figure out like, what's going on? And a helpful adult in your life, you know? James, I think we can hear you. Yes. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Sorry about that. Hello, everyone. Hello, Michael, again. Good job, Bart. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad that you can join us now. Uh, James Weathersby, uh, Weathersby is a chaplain at the Riverview Psychiatric Center in Maine, uh, an ordained Baptist minister uh, in several uh, different judicatories here as I'm looking at your, at your biography. Um, yes. Catch us up quickly to uh, sort of how you ended up doing what you are, and then maybe we can kind of tag along uh, with what Bart and Sarah have been saying with, you know, what does chaplaincy look like in a community of uh, psychiatric patients? Okay. Uh, chaplaincy here has been helping people to feel that they are still uh, empowered, that they have not been forgotten, they have not been forsaken uh, from their own experiences as well as their communal experiences among their family and friends, uh, where actually they've had to uh, kind of form a subculture, as it were, where they know their own resources because the broader um, community, the broader society has so vilified them. Unfortunately, all of these mass casualty events of the last two years, um, the, the press is very quick. I hate to sound like other elected officials. The press is quick to, to vilify them as a, patient, a mental health patient or a person with a mental health background. But that's only one-tenth of one percent of everyone who has a diagnosis um, of whom many do not are not able to have resources. Definitely less than 10 percent of them need uh, my level of, of intervention. My facility is for psychiatric, is for forensic and civilly committed uh, patients, all adults, of course, uh, in the state of Maine, many of whom have been in the system since their early teens who've had an earlier diagnosis, who've gone through lesser interventions, who've gone through rehabilitation, who've been through incarceration. Um, and we can't just um, stigmatize them or label them as those who are less fortunate. Uh, we have people here whose families could buy this facility. We have people here who sleep under bridges. But, and unfortunately, we have learned mental health does not have a particular face. It can strike anyone at any particular time, but the major diagnoses strike in their late teens and progress on from there. Um, so mine have been through the correctional system as Sarah has, has pointed out. Uh, unfortunately, um, for those of us who've been in the business for a while, we'll remember the deinstitutionalization de through the 70s, which then burgeoned into the homelessness and all of a sudden the prison, the prison population starts to swell. Those were those people who were in facilities as the medications got better, when someone was still at home, they were able to have someone at home monitoring their medication input, as well as quote, keep them out of trouble. 
now everyone has to work in this economy. Therefore, people need a greater level of institutional support and resources. So chaplaincy here is reminding them that they are not forsaken. They're not forgotten. They are not every person who uh, responds with violence. They're not every person who is, um, that I guess that the movies are not are no great fan of mental health mental health diagnoses either by showing the the extremes, uh, and that's not certainly not the case. So chaplaincy here is reminding people they are still persons of worth, of value, and of contribution. So it's reminding them of that and helping them to rediscover their dignity and rediscover um, themselves that they are here to. They're not here because of their illness. They're here because of their behavior which says they are no longer safe. And once they have been safe, once they are taking their medication, my, all of my people are taking medication on some level, once they are safe, once they are uh, stable, they're able to return to their homes, they're able to return to their jobs, to their universities, uh, back to their lifestyles and only need maintenance. So yeah, chaplaincy is, is challenging here, but it's also very rewarding hearing people uh, recover not just physically, emotionally, medically, but also spiritually. Uh, you know, James, I asked Bart a question about some of the things that he might encounter with with sort of challenges to his role um, as a humanist chaplain on campus. I wanted to ask you as well, what are the sort of the specific challenges, but also how do you overcome the difficulty of providing spiritual care to those who uh, you'll have to forgive me, I'm not a mental health expert, so I'm going to use the wrong terminology, I'm sure. But for those who have maybe uh, dissociative disorders uh, or who are not sort of operating in the same conception of reality as we are, how do you provide spiritual care in that context? Okay. Um, for me and, and my years of experience, both in prisons, hospitals, hospice, death row, uh, pastor of a church for five years, uh, a very long uh, a career in chaplaincy care, it is reminding our patients, as well as every, every place I've been allowed to minister, everyone has value, everyone has merit, everyone has worth. It's not so much what you do to get away from that, because the moment you are no longer doing your, contrib your contributive uh, uh, role in life, then we say you are no longer of effect, no longer uh, necessary, thinking of the 1984, you're no longer essential, but reminding everyone that you, we are all, sound like the Baptist minister at the time, you're all God's children, but you're all of worth and value, no matter what you contribute, who you are is a person of worth, who you are is a person of value. Now your behavior says we may need some intervention, we may need to correct some of your, some of your thoughts, we may need to uh, secure your behavior which says you are a threat to yourself, to others, self-interest backgrounds, um, behavior. Yes, yes, Bart. I'm, I'm curious because I'm, I'm thinking in a mental health facility. Yes. People, some people are struggling with delusions. They're struggling yes. with voices. They're struggling with getting messages and, and, and feeling the impulses. Yes. And I'm wondering, like, how much God stuff do you do as, as a chaplain in a setting like that? Because it feels to me like it would, you know, like, it's in a weird way, it's another, like, you're like, don't listen to those voices, but I want to really get you in touch with this voice. Yes. And, 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 and that magical stuff doesn't happen, but these magical stories did happen. 
Yes. Like, and I'm like, it's not so much a critique of, you know, what you believe. It's just like, how do you navigate dealing with the world of, sup- of the supernatural over and against the world of the delusional? Over their, 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 their diagnoses? Not, not just like in, a con- like in a conversation with a person sitting in front of you that you're trying to like affirm their value. And yeah. like, you know, because on the one hand, you're, 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 you're calling on some spiritual forces and resources and stories and imagery, and you're encouraging them to engage in spiritual practices that have to do with communicating with unseen forces. Yes. But on the other hand, you're saying like, like, but don't, don't be communicating with those unseen forces. I'm just wondering, like, how does the, how does, how do you, how do you navigate God's God talk in the context of people who are so emotionally and sort of spiritually fragile? Okay. What I have learned, um, jokingly, I told a lot of my colleagues and my friends, I'm a good Zen Baptist. Instead of coming up with a really good answer, I've learned to ask a really good question. So it's, it's uh, making the person know that they are accepted and valued in our relationship, in our connection as human beings, as people. All of us are uh, searching in the dark, trying to find the light switch. And then the course of that acceptance, asking them, tell me how long you've heard the voices. Tell me what the voices not just are telling you to do, but how do they serve in your life? For many people, it is the... Um, it's the voices and the diagnosis that help them not to feel so marginalized. Uh, we had a young lady who for year, for, who, for her initial admission, 25-year-old, very lovely young lady, but she was tortured in her mind with the voices saying to everyone she was Jesus Christ. Well, of course, everyone laughed and kind of snickered and, and ha-ha, well, Jesus Christ was never a woman. And then the voice, my own internal um, monitoring system said, ask the next question. And the next question was, what does being Jesus Christ do for you? And she was able to say, Jesus Christ was never raped. Jesus Christ was never assaulted. Jesus Christ was never violated, which says to me, and then looking through her history, we did discover several instances where she was assaulted and never validated. She was never heard. So being Jesus not only kept her from being raped and assaulted, it also validated, I am still a person, even though Jesus was wounded, but I'm wounded and I'm Jesus, but us least listening and accepting her, she was then heard, validated, she was able to participate in her care because we as the team stopped laughing and we started listening, which means she was safe here in a community that did not judge her, but a community that said, we will help to protect you and we're not gonna judge the voices so much as accept you as a person and affirm and treat you as a person. Because as long as we chase the voices, we'll be chasing the voices till the end of time. But if we ask how the voices serve in your life, when we get back to the person and not chase the behavior. Because remember, they're not here for the illness. They're here for their behavior, which says they're at risk. And that's where we respond, help people to be safe, help people to be fed, help people to be clothed. And oh, by the way, they, be, they begin in the course of receiving their medication, they start to respond, but their first impression is they made me safe, they listened to me, and they responded. So when a person says, I, am, I identify as a woman, we respond to the woman's voice. I identify as a male, we respond to the male voice. So that this is less of another continuation of their abuse, neglect, and um, mistreatment. 
So the God voice, the God presence comes in acceptance, not judging, valuing who they are, listening to who they have, who they say they are, and intervening at the point of need. And it works more effectively than let's make her stop hearing the voices and let's get her back home. That's not effective work. Well, and it also sounds like you're not another voice going like, no, 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 let me tell you how reality yes. is. Correct. This is how the world works. This is where you came from. This, like, you're not jumping in there being another voice. You're sort of yes. going, "I'm here to, I'm here to care and listen." But like, you're not, you're not bringing a lot of theology to these people. No, 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 no. The, um, if we were to quote theology, it would be the theology of presence, which is uh, Tillich, which is Nowen, which is that whole um, the ministry of care by presence, by accepting the person and not valuing. I'm not here to do something to you or do something for you, I'm here to be with you. And in the course of being with you, then they are able to ask the next question when they're ready to uh, go with Maslow's if we have to. The basic needs are, are they safe? Are they fed? Are they clothed? And then let's respond to the voices. Because as long as we're chasing the voices, they know you don't care for them as a person. Which is what the police did, what the court did, what the family did. We're here to do and intervene something better, which includes and especially the chaplain. I want to circle back around, backtrack just a little bit to James. You were saying that so much of your work is is focused on making sure patients know that they have not been forgotten, forsaken. Uh, they're still valued, uh, and and as you said, they're there for their actions, not because of their diagnosis. Yes. Um, now, I don't want to draw sort of too close of a parallel here, but so much of what you said, I could imagine Sarah saying as well, and so. What I want to ask you, Sarah, is how much of your work is that of, of, of just continually validating an existence in a place where I would imagine it is very easy to feel completely forgotten? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that there's structurally, and um, James touched on some of this, there's, there are structural um, reasons why folks that often find themselves in a psychiatric hospital may often just as easily find themselves committed to do some time. Um, so threat to self and others gets dealt with institutionally in our culture. So there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. Um, and that affirmation, I think, forms the baseline of the relationship. Yes. That then allows you um, to help someone move uh, I often will talk about finding your God-given purpose, that you were created for a reason, um, and let's find out what that is and, and have you bloom and grow into the person that you uh, most want to be. And yes. the, the affirmation of where someone is now, the affirmation that I often uh, start worship services, our Christian worship services, which are ecumenical, um, but held on Sundays, by just reminding people that God loves us just as we are. We're coming into the space just as we are, but God loves us too much to leave us that way. Yes. And so the affirmation of who people are, taking them just where they are, listening, affirming that, yeah, you see them. Uh, even if they've been unseen all day, you see them. They don't have to fight for attention in front of you. They just get it. That then forms the relationship where you might start to hear somebody's story. And then after a year or so, it forms that relationship where 
Uh, you might have built up enough of trust that you could speak into somebody's life and say, this is what I'm seeing in you. Or I've watched you rub and wrestle with this particular thing. I'm going to stand on my pastoral authority for a moment and actually tell you something about yourself, right? You can't, you can't do that straight out the gate. Maybe after a few years uh, is, is my typical pattern. I feel like I've built that rapport. Uh, but absolutely, it starts with acceptance, um, just, just baseline. And that's challenging what society says about who folks are incarcerated, you know, who's incarcerated. It's challenging what people's families are often saying to them on the phone and in visitation. And it's, it's definitely in a lot of systems challenging the way officers are trained uh, to, to maintain safety and security. Often the ways that people are trained to maintain safety and security um, has some dehumanizing aspects to it. It's not about listening to folks, but about keeping people shut down. And so sometimes the chaplain is one of the few sort of, I think of it as a release valve, uh, when the pressure is just starting to build up in a prison system, both for staff and residents alike. Uh, prison chaplains are a place where some of that can go and be released. You know, what, what strikes me as you, as you talk about specifically the training of, of officers and what their goals are, all three of you are embedded within institutions uh, that ostensibly have some big, you know, Try to get amb ambiguous goal. Uh, they're trying to achieve some end. Um, but that may not always be what you are trying to achieve. Um, I would imagine that sometimes that can I'll be... i it again. <laughs> well, we can hear you now, James. Maybe he can't hear us. Um, I'm going to mute you for just a second, James, while you're uh, working on that. Um, so the question is, where do you fit sort of within the institution, either as a culture or just literally on a team? How does that work, uh, especially when there is sort of an, an open understanding that maybe you're not trying to achieve the same thing as this institution? And Bart, I mean, you mentioned of uh, uh, sort of being subversive and asking people you know, what you really want to accomplish. Um, but, but Sarah, I'm sure the same applies to you. So I'd love to hear about that. Well, yeah, there's a, it's a, a very direct and constant daily issue. Um, what I find is that there is a lot of respect for the office of the chaplain um, from all of the different roles within a prison system. Um, and at the same time, some acknowledgement that we are at the end of the day, uh, we don't carry weapons, uh, we are not trained in use of force, and we are not tasked with the maintenance of the safety and security of the institution. We participate in it and we certainly want to uphold it, but it's not our primary task. Um, and so I uphold policy, absolutely. Um, but when I talk about upholding policy, I will often tell people I want to uphold a prison's policy in the most spacious way possible. I want to take the policy that we all have to abide by if we're going to work in the system and breathe as much life, as much growth, as much space into it. Um, and I know that for a lot of my peers who are serving in more of a, custo a custody role, um, that feels too risky. And what they've been tasked with feels like actually they need to, to take policy <laughs> and read it in the most constricting possible way in order to cover their own rear ends. Um, and so I actually find that being a chaplain 
it would be hard for me, I think, to participate in a prison system in any other way. Sometimes it's hard to participate as a chaplain because there are ways in which I feel like I'm upholding an institution that at its very base um, is treating human beings in less than human ways. Um, but as a chaplain, I do feel that I have the space and standing in the, in the institution uh, to sort of breathe as much life as possible. And so that's a role I'm willing to stand in, even if it's in a bit of a compromised way. Yeah. Are we chiming in? <laughs> um, what I've found is, um, I've told people I'm the, I'm the safest staff person in, in our mental health facility. I cannot make people leave earlier. I can't make them leave longer. And some, I've also served on the ethics committee. So every now and then I'm called in for a consult. Uh, but to walk the fine line between the patients and the staff, reminding the staff they're not here to impose the policy, but to enforce it and reminding the, the patients they're not here to James, we've lost you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'll jump in. I'll jump in until he gets back in the world. Yes, because you know, when I was at USC and at UC, I, I, I emphasize that I'm a volunteer chaplain, and and I think like if most of the people that are probably familiar, like there are schools that have paid chaplains, yeah. like sectarian schools, Catholic schools. Uh, evangelical schools, Taylor University or, or, or Wheaton College has a chaplaincy. And those people work for the university. They work for the institution. Um, and I'm sorry, James, you look very upset all of a sudden. Are you in there? Are you with us? Back with us? Oh. Sorry about that. Interesting. <laughs> okay, there you go. Finish what you're saying. <laughs> the heck? <laughs> Maybe he can't hear us. Well, it's like he can either hear or talk, but he can't uh, both. Yeah, can't talk. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're you're there in a volunteer capacity. So what I'm saying is, is that when you like when you work and, and like at, at USC, there's a dean of religious life, and they work for the university, and they oversee the whole thing, and they're part of that whole machine, and they have to support the president, and they have to support the policies of the school, even when the policies of the school aren't necessarily great at certain points. And, and, and I, re I remember watching my dean be in tension with that. But like on a campus like ours, I'm like the Hillel person. I'm like mm -hmm. the inner varsity Christian fellowship person. I'm like the Catholic, um, the, the, the Newman Catholic house person, supported by a religious community that has nothing to do with the university and sort of sent as a missionary to the campus. And that is a much sort of morally safer place to be because <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have to support or uphold or, or, or apologize for the things the university has done. Sometimes, in fact, I'm helping the students organize to protest or to speak back to or, right. to, or, or to challenge things that they're hearing and saying from the administration. So you know, as a chaplain, I, I feel like that, that's been a really beautiful thing is the, is the opportunity to be in an institution, but not of it. Right. For me, I have to maintain my credentialing. I'm a state employee as well as I'm still an ordained minister. So I resp respond to both sides at the same time, which holds the staff accountable and also intervene for the patients. So that's also a fine line to walk in. 
Yes. I mean, so in some ways, if you want to understand how chap, like how some, some parts of chaplaincy, it's the old rule of journalism, you know, follow the money. And like, <laughs> you know, there's no money in the state. <laughs> no, because like, you know, it's very difficult to disabuse, like, what was it Upton Sinclair once said, it's very difficult to change a man's mind about something if his salary depends upon him not changing it. Yes. And like, you know, that's, I think, the story of a lot of professional ministers. Right. Is, is that we, because we're institutionalized and, you know, and the money is coming from a certain angle, we, we're sort of like unconsciously think we have constraints around our thinking. And so sometimes I think mm. that be a good advocate for people in a difficult in institutional environment, it's helpful if you're not part of the institution. But at the same time, it keeps, it keeps the staff aware I am, quote, their chaplain. It keeps the patients aware I'm their chaplain. And also reminds myself, I'm, I'm not particularly to choose a side, but as Sarah said, I'm still to be mindful of the policy, but there's also some freedom in that I am accountable to the state, I'm accountable to my denomination, but I'm also accountable to my professional organization to represent not just the policy of the state, but the policy of professional chaplaincy, which is the advocacy of everyone's spirituality. Everyone has value, everyone has merit, everyone is to be treated with respect and dignity, regardless of their faith or lack of faith. Uh, and it's my job to be everyone's chaplain and not to pick a side or persuade or convert. Uh, and I've had that conversation with patients. Why don't I convert the staff? I've had that conversation with the staff. Why don't I convert the patients? Um, when we have the Quran and the Bible on the same stand and have had staff and patients remove either, saying that they don't deserve there, and I have to stand in between to say, but they all have merit and they all speak to a particular need in everyone. So everyone has a sacred writing. That's greater than me. That's the chaplaincy that intervenes for everybody and keeps everybody accountable. You know, as, I, as I'm looking through the, uh, the attendee list actually for, for this webinar, I know that we have a real diversity of people who are here, whether they are uh, already chaplains now in some sort of sector or they're chaplains in training. Um, so I would love to hear more about, A, how you, how you approach professional development where you are. This is kind of the practical question instead of, instead of uh, you know, sort of the theory of what you do, but how do you develop professionally? Um, and B, looking back over the arc of your career and the early stages of it, um, what would you tell people who are sort of interested in chaplaincy, even if they don't have a, a really clear idea of where they might end up, how would you advise them to, uh, to sort of get started on this career? You need to know what your denomination requires uh, before you get too specific to get as much practical experience in the field. Um, and I will claim I was blessed while I was in seminary to be exposed to one of the few prison um, association of, of uh, clinical pastoral education units. So I was in seminary at the same time I was getting my practical experience as uh, the student assistant to the chaplain as well as taking a basic unit of CPE. Yeah, back in the dark ages, it was called basic and advanced. Um, but, uh, but that gave me my practical experience as well as my a good theological and a good um, institutional exposure. Here's what chaplaincy looks like. Here's what it's not, as well as learning to accept patients, 
except I was in the in the prison system, except inmates and having to respond, something like Sarah said earlier, having to respond to people who say, my name is one, two, three, I'm one, two, three, four, five, I'm here for aggravated assault, I'm serving one to five, and having to say to them and reminding myself, what is your name? You had a name before you had a number and you still have a name once you leave, so don't forget your name and don't forget who you are as a person while you're here and adapt this behavior as normative because you are here in an artificial environment for to serve your time and then to leave and go back home to your life and even here at Riverview having to remind our patients Riverview is a small part of a very long life hopefully that you have and don't get confused and assume this is your new home that you forget your life is outside of Riverview um, so a lot of practical experience a lot of clinical training as well as understand um, you're not going into this to match Bill Gates's uh, income, but to answer a, yeah, a divine sense of calling uh, to be with hurting people in a very artificial environment to restore dignity, justice, and humanity, as Sarah alluded to earlier. Yeah, I think what I would say is um, there's no press to find the exact right chaplaincy home quickly. So I actually did my first CPE training in a psychiatric hospital. Mm, we traded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I went uh, Bart's way and did uh, Baptist campus ministry uh, at Duke University. Good school. And then wound my way into prison chaplaincy, which feels like really more of a home and more. I feel like I was on a search and a path. Um, but I will say another another way that I've kept my skills sharp in terms of your uh, question about continuing education mm. is that after about six years in ministry, um, was just starting to feel like I was showing up to work and losing my way. I was sitting in, you know, conversation after conversation about intensive childhood sexual assault, um, intensive experiences of violence, and starting to wonder am I, what am I doing? What <laughs> am I helping at all? What are these conversations about? I'm going home drained. I'm not sure anybody's getting anything out of them. And um, so I was able to find a CPE center here in Durham at the VA that mm. was willing to work with me on an extended unit where most of my hours could just be on site at my job, but where I could participate in those conversations that you participate in in CPE um, and it was all I needed it was sort of that shot of adrenaline that reminded me about the core principles of chaplaincy reminded me why what I was doing was making a difference um, yes. and so I would recommend that as well even if you have the CPE that you need uh, you can always go back and take another unit and many uh, many sites will work with you on having yes. your job placement be where you're doing your clinical hours definitely uh, you know, I, I, I've got a thought here, too, is, is chaplaincy as opposed to pastoral ministry? I mean, some, you know, when people say, like, what advice would you give to somebody younger? Or, like, what do you, what do you, and one of the main things, I mean, obviously for me, like, I don't regret the years I spent, you know, as a Christian, per se. I just regret that I was a professional Christian. Because <laughs> when my faith no, when I when I couldn't hold that narrative any longer, I wasn't just out of a worldview. I was out of a job, and, mm -hmm. and it was a tremendously difficult thing to make that transition. And so a lot of times when I'm seeing young people that are getting in, in, involved in going into ministry, 
Um, and in particular chaplaincy, I say like, listen, you do not want to, you do not want to design a career around where you are right now, spiritually or theologically, mm. but you rather want to look down the road. Yes. Where you're going. Cause like, honestly, if, if you'd have real, if somebody were really sat down and talked with me, all the seeds of my leaving Christianity were there when I was in my early twenties. You know, I was, I was fighting like hard. I was doing all kinds of spiritual gymnastics to make Christianity work. I went through every stage of heresy on my way to apostasy, trying desperately to stay a believer. And, and so sometimes what I say to somebody is like, look, you may not be like, you know, in the old days, I used to say something, you may not be okay with gay marriage now, but like, you look like the kind of person that in 10 years from now is going to be. So right. you don't want to like build a whole career around being part of an institution or part of a denomination that's not going to let you make that move because then you're going to be in trouble later on. It's like an airplane running out of fuel. You want to look for your landing pads before you actually reach the crisis point. And I think that when people go into, when people go into pastoral care, there's a much better chance that they're going to be in a church that's like a plausibility structure that reinforces weekly. They're around the same kind of people and everybody believes the same thing. But when you're in a prison, you're going to see a lot of violence and a lot of, of unremitting tragedy. When you're in a hospital, you're going to see a lot of death. And, it's going to, and, so, and you're not going to be with people. It's always going to be new people coming through and more tragedy and more death. And so your chances of not having your theology shaken to its bones are much less. And so if you're going to go into those fields, you either need to know for a fact that you're going to be able to hold the narrative that you started out with, or you better be, you better design your career in such a way that you can move along as you go and okay. not find yourself 50 years old and out of a job. Okay. Um, and uh, um, ACP, the Association of, of uh, Pastoral um, Professional Chaplaincy is now addressing it instead of calling it chaplaincy uh, profession, they're calling it chaplaincy care, which is not just to be so, uh, as, as, as Barr said, so rigidly defined by your denomination, you forget, A, everyone who believes is not a Christian. Everyone who believes a Christian is not your kind of believing Christian. Uh, there are other sacred texts beyond the, the Holy Scriptures. And, but everyone fundamentally believes something that gives them value, purpose, guidance, comfort, and strength, and how to tap into that and represent that spirit universally in every situation we go, which to me is not just my calling as an ordained Baptist Christian minister, but also as a, as a professional chaplain. It's my job to keep that in mind, which keeps me accountable to this profession. I am a, a board certified chaplain because as Sarah said, and, and Bart said, there was my traditional training my, at my seminary. And then there was what CPE garnered, which was how do you boost that beyond just this single definition of faith? How do you foster that to represent more people who will come to you and say, and I love working in prison, as Sarah said, people say, well, I hate God, I hate the church, but I like you, so I'll keep talking to you, which is, okay, the first relationship is what is that divine moment and how to keep that and hold people accountable in that and to build from there. So... A little more expanding on my idea of chaplaincy, chaplaincy care. Uh, Sarah has, has uh, given a really nice answer uh, in the Q&A function here uh, to a question, but I want to ask it 
uh, of Bart and James as, as well. And this gets to exactly what you were, you were talking about, uh, maybe in sort of more of a short-term mode. But what do you do to prevent burnout? Because, uh, James, I would expect it's, it's frequent for you that you're just dealing with so much heavy material every day. Um, Bart, I'm sure that there are a great number of situations that I, I'm not even thinking of right now that you're dealing with with university students that, you know, secondary trauma, compassion fatigue, whatever you want to call it, that's that's just uh, an inherent risk. What do you do to, to mitigate that? Uh, with me, the... As my, my professional association says, we have to maintain X amount of continual education hours, as well as do X amount of research, as well as what we do personally to foster that. So staying in a therapeutic relationship, staying in a denominational connection, as well as finding things that kind of feed my brain and feed my spirit. Um, so I did a, a, a two, three breakout sessions with uh, Wentworth Douglas in Dover, um, I'm doing here with Brandeis. Uh, I do um, two clinical case conferences here at my facility um, to challenge my, my professional staff as well as challenge myself, uh, keep a big pile of books that I'm reading and pray a lot. Well, I think uh, I think you set the record for, for responding that you prevent burnout by working more. <laughs> it's, work, it's working differently. <laughs> Whatever works for you. But Bart, what about you? How do you how do you avoid that? Oh, and yoga. I forgot yoga. Interesting because I, you know I, I I mean I think like in any profession, anywhere, like people say, you should exercise, you should take time off, you should spend time with your family. Like, like, <laughs> like burnout, like, I'm not sure that chaplain burnout is different from other kinds of burnout, except in this one respect. And it's interesting because I'm looking at the questions that are coming in. And this guy, John Betts says, how do you provide hope in the midst of what can be, you know, seem to be complete hopelessness? Is there ever a time when a situation is utterly hopeless? How do you provide self-care or how do you provide care to another person in the midst of that? And I think that's the unique thing about chaplaincy is, is that I think that you've got to be a proof on the two things. Number one is I think you've got to be a good compartmentalizer. I mean, I think you have to be able to like be incredibly present with this young woman who's telling you about this assault that she went through and you listen and you try to get her into the best care that you can and, and, you, and, you, and you try to provide some kind of frame of reference to help her reframe the situation in a way that gives her dignity and all of these things you do. And then like she leaves your office and you're like, hey, you know, I wonder, I wonder if the game's on tonight. Like, like you have, if, if you carry that home with you and, and you sit with that, like, I mean, over the, over years, like I just, you accumulate so many of the, those things that like, I have to be able to like be totally present with a person and then be able to, in some sense, not completely shut off, not care and not think about it again, but in a sense, emotionally put in a place where I like come home and I can be present for my wife or for my kids. And I think some people are naturally more cut out to do that kind of compartmentalizing. And I go like, those people should be really good chaplains. And I think that people that can't do that maybe need to be more where they locate themselves within the life of one community and they track along with that community. But this idea of like people just bouncing into your life with massive pain and then like moving on, like you've got to be a good compartmentalizer to do that. Um, so I'll go ahead. Go ahead. 
Um, I am not naturally like that. <laughs> I uh, will naturally get deeply mired in compassion fatigue. And so I just want to share a resource. It's called Help for the Helper. Yes. Uh, Full-length book, The Psychology of Compassion Fatigue and Vicarious Trauma. It's by Babette Rothschild. And it revolutionized my ability to provide ongoing ministry without burnout. Um, so unlike all the spiritual disciplines that we take on to keep ourselves going, this is not about taking on something new. It's about inhabiting the pastoral office space and the moment of pastoral care differently, tapping into some neuropsychological tools in the way you use your body and the way you use eye contact um, to actually help decrease the way in which you're taking on other people's emotions. Um, so again, help for the helper. I would just recommend, give that a high recommendation. It changed my life. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. I was thinking like when we were raising our little kids, we would read these parenting books and they would give us a, a new thing to try. And you'd be like, we're going to try this way of talking or this. And like, it would work for a while and then it would stop working. And then we would read another book and it would work for a while. And, and what I realized was, is that none of the books themselves were the answer, but that what helped us stay, they kept us trying new things so that we didn't just keep repeating the same pattern. And like, we were always thinking about what we were doing from a different angle. And I think like that idea of like, how do you inhabit that office in a different, like, like having a different angle on it. I think that there's something about always trying something new in your one-on-one -on -one care with people so that even if the problems keep being the same you don't keep approaching them the same way over and over again because that even if the way you approach them is good for the other person it's not good for you to just keep repeating the same conversation for 15 or 20 years you got to keep you got to keep changing it from your angle just so that you're still there as a human being and, and going back to what Michael said, I think for me, it's not working harder. Sometimes it's working smarter, trying to be as aware of the, of the new material, of the new uh, publications on moral injury coming from, you know, it's an older term from, um, you know, it's an older term, but here in the VA now really pick up on that, being aware, uh, as Sarah said, of, second, of uh, compassion, uh, secondary compassion, fatigue, and, and the things that we're exposed to. But as remember that each person's how they live that out it is so individually unique. It also keeps me fresh and keeps me prayerful and mindful in the moment with that person. Even though, quote, there was an answer, I went through this with two, three years ago, three, three or four patients ago. This is still a unique person and how they live it out, how they flesh it out. And asking that next question, how, tell me how this impacts you so I can respond to you in this moment. So I don't just keep dating myself, mimeographing my responses and giving the same response each and every time. That's how I get stale, but I get fresh by staying in the moment with the person. Well, I want to be respectful of, of our attendees' time and, and your all's time as well. We're coming up on the hour here. Um, so I just want to open up uh, one last round of, of final comments. <laughs> Well, I'll say I was having trouble typing uh, an answer to this question, but um, someone asked the question of uh, how do we find places to get together and to 
to be in fellowship with other chaplains um, when often you show up to your local clergy association meetings and it's almost entirely local church pastors. And I will just say that that's one of the reasons that I'm excited about the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab is because that has been, it's been a real struggle in my ministry um, is showing up to association meetings and feeling like I don't really fit in and what's being talked about as ministry isn't what I'm doing on a daily basis. Um, so I will just say for those of you who are looking for those ways to affiliate, maybe we can find some virtual ways to affiliate with one another and fill that gap. Yeah, and for what it's worth, um, they're like university chaplaincies are kind of their, like they're a distinctive enough thing that there are like associations of university chaplains and stuff. But I think a lot of times people that are working on the fringes of a university campus that are providing chaplaincy services on a university, but don't necessarily have the definition or have a salary or anything, they don't know where to find those people. And, and I would just encourage like, it's funny, if I was a better person, I would have all those things at my fingertips and I would put the link down for you. But I do know some people that are organizing, even secular chaplains, but also just, just who are organizing like sort of spiritual caregivers on college campuses all over the country. And if you contacted me, I would be happy to introduce you to them. I know professionalchaplains.org is always looking for people, not just pursuing certification, but also pursuing uh, attending our meetings, also attending the regional meetings to come and ask questions, to find out about uh, chaplaincy, about resources, education, uh, continuing education units, um, books, publications, as well as research into chaplaincy. And they are always, uh, except for the, uh, the executive boards, they're always open for students and other ministers in the area to come and attend. And they encourage us to attend regional, uh, as well as our national meetings as well. So, and participate in local clergy meetings as well, which is also our, our local context and our, uh, our cadre of volunteers for our people, our patients. Well, thank you all very much for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that, that uh, people would often think of, of setting the three of you down for a common conversation, but I'm very glad that we were able to do so here today. So thank you for joining me. Uh, we're joined today by Sarah Job who is a prison chaplain with Interfaith Prison Ministry for Women, Bart Campolo, who is a volunteer humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati, and James Weathersby, who is chaplain at the Riverview Psychiatric Center in Maine. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I hope you'll join us for future webinars. This will be recorded uh, and posted online, uh, so look out for that soon, and stay in touch for future events. Thank you all. Absolutely. Peace.